Trevor Alpin, the T1 of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. That is his weekly Monday appearance. It is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what falls, as he does every week during those Monday appearances, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Monday, in the pages of Fangraphs, saw both the introduction and the first installment of Dave Cameron's annual Trade Value Series. That is a series of posts in which Dave Cameron ranks the top 50 players in Major League Baseball or I suppose the minor leagues uh, are also eligible, by their trade value. That serves as an entree into the conversation that we have, which Cameron himself actually ties to uh, some of my own travels recently in uh, assorted European cities. Would one, for example, trade Paris for Berlin? Is Paris, for example, worth the extra expenses that it requires? In any way, all of that conversation leads to revelations like the following made by Cameron. So this unnamed Croatian woman is the Mike Trout of your travels. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Hey. Yeah, so what a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, welcome back to the U.S. Yeah, it's not so bad being here. Yeah. You sound like you're in the room with me. I. Uh, it does sound better that we're on the same continent. It does. Yeah, it really yeah. does. It sounds, uh, it sounds beautiful. Yeah. Do you think that the the content of what follows uh, will match the audio quality? Uh, I think that's unlikely, unless the audio, audio quality declines greatly. <laughs> okay. Uh, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are yeah, you? Good. I'm in a, um, I'm staying with my dad. You ever stay with your parents for I, an extended period? I mean, I've done it for like a week here or there. I, I moved out in 1999, and so then I go back on vacation and stay with them when I'm there, but yeah. uh, not for like months on end. How's, does it go well when while you're there? Yeah, generally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, wi- the wife and I are going there next month. So, okay. uh, you know, we can give you an update in a, in a few days. Yeah, we're or, looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, it's not so bad. So yeah. You see the parents. It's, uh, it is, uh, as you note, though, cause you live across the country from your folks, I think. Yeah. I, I do, yes. Yeah. And, uh, one of the difficulties of that, if, if I think that's the appropriate word is to visit them, you generally, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to do like a stop and chat, you know? And so you do find yourself spending days at a time with them, as opposed to say like a lunch or something. Right. Well, it would really not make sense for me to go have lunch with my parents, no. considering the geographical yeah. limitations. Uh, so usually, if we're going to fly across the country and spend all the money on airfare, we're going to try and, you know, make it worth our time. Right. Uh, let's see. Baseball, perhaps. Uh, sure. Yeah. Although I, I do think, because I'm guessing we're going to talk about the trade value series. Yeah. I think we should talk about the trade value of the different places you've been. So, oh, like, yeah. if Berlin was put up on the trade market versus Paris, mm. which one would return a greater uh, return? Uh, well, do you? Well, actually, that's an interesting thing, right? Because I don't know the exact um, economic terminologies for this, but there's a question. Uh, for example, per, uh, Paris versus Berlin. There's a question of purchasing power. Right. Yeah. I think that that has to be factored in. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So um <clears throat> let's see. And then and then I don't know necessarily how you and maybe this happens with players as well in terms of trade value. Um uh certainly I'm more familiar with Paris at this point, right? I understand it and my and I, this is uh, but my wife 
my wife definitely prefers Paris. And so right. in terms of how I value it, um, her happiness is my happiness. Right. We're all aware of that. And, yeah. uh, and so that factors into it also pretty great. And the fact that I don't know German is at, at all. I, and, I mean, I know, I know Paris, like I can, um, communicate pretty decently with like a three-year-old French person. Um, yeah, you just give them a toy and they're happy. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean, we can have like a short conversation. Okay. But with like an actual adult, it's a little, it's a little bit more embarrassing. Right. Um, so I would say, I would say Berlin, so Berlin, you're paying Berlin less money to do what it's doing. And it, I guess if you're looking for a slightly cheaper food, that's pretty good. Um, and probably, and certainly cheaper accommodations. Okay. So uh, Berlin is the less good, lower cost player. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, for some people, some people might just straight up prefer it, uh, because it does have, uh, it does have more of, um, let's see. It has more, of a bohemian atmosphere, in particular in some of the neighborhoods um, in the, the sort of south or southeast part of it. Um, and I think that some people might prefer that. Whereas Paris, Paris is very like, like there, you don't find, uh, sorry, here's a, here's a, Berlin is essentially Portland, Oregon in Germany. Right. If that you gives made you this an idea. comparison. Did I? Like, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So whereas Paris is like, everyone dresses like an adult, even the children dress like adults. Right. So, so Paris is like Miguel Cabrera. It's great, but it's also like you're costly. Paying, yeah, yeah, you're paying for it, right. You, right? You're paying a premium. So maybe, maybe Paris is not that valuable of a city given what you have to pay to live there. I think it's possible. And yet at the same time, like if you have the payroll, right? Right. Then why um, not have that? This is one of the tricky parts of the trade value list is like, you know, uh, Miguel Cabrera is not on the list, but they're, you know, the Tigers, Love having Miguel Cabrera. They're not going to trade him for, you know, Jan Gomes, who came in at number fifty. They would be like, no, you can't have Jan. You can't have Miguel Cabrera for right. a catcher who was traded for Esmil Rogers a couple of years ago. So when you're trying to measure aggregate demand, you certainly have variations where, you know, your wife's preference for Paris is going to be much different than yours is. Just like the Yankees' preference for an expensive great player is going to be much different than the Rays. Well, so along those lines, right? So, like in my particular situation. Preferring Paris makes a lot of sense. My wife likes it. I know a little bit of the language as opposed to Germany where I know none, um, although you can speak more English in Berlin. Uh, is there is there a situation in baseball in uh, where paying – like I, I like I think of like the Derek Jeter situations, right, where Derek Jeter was probably worth a lot more to the Yankees than he was to other teams. Yeah. Uh, is, do we see that? I mean, in how many instances do we see that across baseball right now? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's really tough to measure. I don't think there's any doubt that – that a player kind of crosses a point at which his value to his current team uh, at some point in his career becomes larger than his value to any other team. Uh, Jeter's obviously an example, but I think pretty much any player who's probably spent 10 to 15 years uh, and is in a you know decent revenue city uh, that can afford to pay an aging player who doesn't necessarily uh, you know, isn't going to be the most efficient way of spending that money, can maybe afford to pay a little bit of a premium for marketing and fan development and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you're going to have some long-term value of having, like, this guy was a career player for our organization. We're going to build a statue to him. He's going to go in the Hall of Fame wearing our hat. We're going to trot him out every, you know, 10 years uh, and have him throw the opening day uh, first pitch. And, you know, we're going to use him as an ambassador for our organization. Uh, and that has real long-term value that you don't get if you're kind of like the David Cohn hitman and you, you know, change teams every year. 
Um, I don't think there's a lot of those guys. And I think one of the things that's kind of interesting about this generation of players is a lot of them have put a kind of a value on spending their entire career with one team where, you know, 20 years ago it was basically Cal Ripken and Tony Gwynn were the only guys who did that. And now you have, you know, almost one per team. You have a lot of these guys signing these really long-term career extensions and say, you know, I kind of want to have a legacy in the city. Well, if everyone has a legacy in the city, then it becomes a little less special. Right. So is this a possible thing that could become – I mean, the the frequency which players started changing teams, I assume, was directly a product of, of free agency. Yeah. Right. right. Free agency made that possible. Right. And so now um, – but now, as you know, there are more instances of players who've made commitments, which, you know, it would it would seem to make sense that they will be spending the rest of their careers with with that one club. Do you sense this something? But as you say, if this happens with a bunch of players, it could become less special. Is it possible that it's a cyclical thing at this point? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, as we in 10 years, we have Evan Longoria and Joey Votto and these guys who, you know, have maybe spent their entire careers in cities that aren't the Yankees or the Red Sox or, you know, the those kind of marquee franchises who are used to having these kinds of players, uh, it might become a little less, from a national level, uh, prestigious to be like, oh, yeah, you spent your entire career with one one organization when we have 25 or 30 guys who just did that versus 20 years ago when there were two or three and it was kind of seen as, like, these are the true guys who didn't necessarily go for maximum amount of money Nowadays, you can kind of have both. You can have a lot of money, and you can stay with your original franchise for the rest of your career. Now, how have you? Because I noted in your, was it, I think it was in your introduction uh, to the trade value series, you mentioned that Miguel Cabrera, whom we've mentioned, and also Clayton Kershaw, um, who again, Clayton Kershaw is just—he's great. He's the amazing. Best. Yes, yes right. he's very yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and he's very good for right now because he's a pitcher. We don't know how long he's going to be good, but we know he's good right now. And provi- given his health. We expect that he'll be good for the for the near future. Yeah. How has your because this is what year five, year six, year ten? I've been doing this for ten years. The trade? Are you joking? No, I started it in two thousand five. My. Yeah. All right, and the, then the and original then, list, the first player ever listed on the trade value series, Daniel Cabrera. Okay. Not not a good selection. Okay. <laughs> well, that that lends itself to the question I was going to ask. Um, how have you changed, in particular, I'm curious, with regard to players like Miguel Cabrera and Clayton Kershaw, yeah. whose production is sort of irreplaceable, but who are getting paid for that production? How, is, yeah. how, have, as you, how have you changed your approach to these sorts of players? So I think over the last few years, maybe starting about three or four years ago, I got a decent amount of feedback from friends who actually work in Major League Baseball. And, you know, I think they kind of enjoy the list, too. It was like a kind of a fun exercise. But they, the feedback I got was that I was overrating uh, average or slightly above average players with limited upside signed to very cheap contracts, where, you know, maybe as a two-and-a-half or three-win player making four or five million dollars a year, if you just do a straight calculation on kind of dollar per war or return on investment based on, you know, how much money the player's paid and what he what he produces on the field, uh, you you kind of miss what the market is actually looking for and gets excited about. Um, and I think teams have kind of told me that they put a lot of value on upside. And a lot of – there's a kind of a premium paid in in trades to try and get a kind of a franchise cornerstone, uh, which is one of the reasons why when you hear, you know, like the Marlins might shop Giancarlo Stanton, the packages 
uh, are ridiculous. And you think, like, well, it's only a couple of years of team control, and they're going to be fairly expensive years in arbitration because he gets home runs and gets RBIs and does the thing that arbiters like. Uh, so, you know, maybe you'd rather have seven years of Jan Gomes at, you know, six million a year than you would two years of Giancarlo Stanton at 13 million a year. And you can make that case from a mathematical standpoint. So a few years back, maybe four or five years ago, I would have put Jan Gomes and Giancarlo Stanton kind of on a level playing field or maybe even put Gomes ahead of Stanton. And the reaction I got from, from front offices was, no, 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 there's only one Giancarlo Stanton. We can go find another Jan Gomes. Uh, the scarcity is really what drives our desire to go find these premium players. Now, the tough part is with guys like Cabrera and Kershaw, uh, contracts really do have to be factored in because teams absolutely look at their long-term costs and say, you know, maybe with a guy like Stanton, you can you can dream on the fact that you might be able to sign him to an extension that isn't going to break the bank. But Cabrera got a deal that's almost certainly going to end really poorly, and there just aren't very many teams out there in baseball who can take on $270 million over the next nine years for a guy in his 30s who, you know, is large and probably not going to age that well. Uh, you're basically cutting out all of the middle to low revenue teams. They're out immediately. And then the high revenue teams already have first basemen and designated hitters and uh, guys who play the positions that Cabrera can play and make a lot of money. I mean, the Yankees already have Mark Teixeira and Carlos Beltran. The Red Sox have Mike Napoli and David Ortiz. The Dodgers have Adrian Gonzalez, and they don't have the ability to put anyone at DH, like, there wouldn't be a huge bidding war for 9 to 70 for Miguel Cabrera, even as great as he is. And Kershaw, as I noted in the piece, basically has a poison pill in his contract that says, if he's traded, he becomes a free agent at the end of the season. No one's going to give up uh, what it would take to get Clayton Kershaw from the Dodgers, only to watch him opt out, become a free agent. And uh, even if they think they could re-sign him, it's going to be at a, probably a higher rate than what he has signed for right now. So, uh, I think Kershaw's contract basically makes him untradeable, uh, which doesn't mean he doesn't value, but he doesn't have trade value. Wait, can I ask a naive question? Sure. Is is okay? So say I'm uh, the GM for the Red Sox, yeah. and I want to trade for Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. Uh, but I know that he has this, as you mentioned, this clause which should make him a free agent. <clears throat> Am I allowed to make it uh, essentially like the if I say okay, I'll make the trade as long as Kershaw also guarantees that he'll sign a deal with us after the season. Is there any way to make that arrangement, or is that illegal? No, yeah, you can do that. And you can also, you know, you could negotiate that he doesn't use that clause. Um, I think the problem is, if you're going to call the Dodgers and you're the Red Sox or whoever, and you want Clayton Kershaw and you say, okay, you've got the best pitcher in baseball at an expensive but, you know, not, you know, irresponsible contract given what he is and, um you know, kind of his age and his mostly durability. Um, you know, I will give you a good package for Clayton Kershaw, but I need him to not exercise his opt-out. So he's going to basically guarantee that he'll be with me for the next four years in order to get Kershaw to not use that, which is basically waive a, what is essentially amounts to a no-trade clause. You have to not only pay the Dodgers a premium for what you're acquiring, now you have to pay Kershaw a premium uh, in some kind of, uh, he's going to want something for not for not exercising that clause. So maybe you have to give him a raise. Maybe you have to guarantee uh, extra dollars at the end. Maybe you have to buy him a mansion. Uh, who knows what you have to do? But now you have to pay the Dodgers a premium, and you have to pay the Red Sox. Uh, you have to pay Kershaw a premium. It's just going to become so expensive that it's not worth doing. Okay. Uh, so let's return. So we actually uh, produced um, some analogs in baseball relative to the relationship between Paris and Berlin. 
Here's a, here's a, uh, another place I visited was the very southern part of Italy. Okay. Uh, it's the Salento region, which is sort of the southern part of Puglia, and that's like the, like the very bottom of the heel of Italy. Okay? So well, I don't know. When you describe it that way, it sounds awesome. Who doesn't want to spend time at the bottom of the heel? <laughs> but it's, so, alright, so here's the interesting thing about this region, right? Uh, A, it's beautiful. I mean, it has its own particular beauty. Uh, beauty. It's, it's dry. Uh, it's rather dry, but everything that's delicious grows there. So olives grow there. Uh, oh, those aren't delicious at all. You don't like olives? Oh, oh no. Really? Seriously? Seriously. I do not like olives. Do you recognize that there are people whose taste do you trust who do like olives? I do, but I am then immediately less trusting of those people. <laughs> what about olive oil? Olive oil is fine because it doesn't taste like olives. Okay, yeah, sure. Olive oil. So they make a lot, they usually use the olives for olive oil. Okay. All right. And it's very nice olive oil. Uh, they make amazing, uh, like, buffalo-style mozzarella there. Right. Okay. Uh, they make, I mean, wine, like, you know, great wine from the top to the uh, top to bottom of, uh, you know, quality, but it's all right there. Um, basically, I mean, the great cherries. Uh, there's good There's good bread to be found in there. There's Anything, good Italian food is what you're good saying. Good Italian food, right. You're yeah, in the right. hub of that. Plus, you're also by the sea. Right. So, seafood. Right. So, yeah. So great seafood. And you can just walk to the beach. And really, it, it's only touristy like one month of the year. So the rest of the time you can live a life. The problem is um, and I like to, you know, when I visit a place and I don't think I'm unique in this way. Uh, on the one hand, I just think, oh, I'm, I'm in a different place. I'm traveling. The other hand, I like to understand, well, what would it be like to live here? Right. If I were to if I were to make this a home. The problem is that there are besides these sort of artisanal food goods, there are zero industries. Right. Uh, this town that we visited, uh, it's called Morciano de Luca. Almost everyone in the town speaks French, uh, because, uh, almost all the people in the town have spent a substantial portion of time in Geneva where they go to work in seasonal positions before once again returning to their town where there's no jobs or very few jobs. Right. So, if, if you, it's, and the things here are cheaper certainly than Paris, um, and uh, if for no other reason than a lot of the things that you'd want are made right there in the region, uh, and the housing's not particularly expensive. However, if you imagine yourself living there, you say, "Oh, that would be uh, that would be tough. Um, uh, be tough to find to find work." So that doesn't st- stack up as well. So this is a sort of place where you could live, I suppose, but it is relatively isolated. The nearest city is maybe Lecce, which is a while's north, but that's not even a huge city. Um, and so it's a thing that has very much a lot of appeal as a destination, like for vacation, but very, but much, but little more than that. So, so it, ha- it has only one. It's like sort of limited in terms of its use. This town sounds like playing for the San Diego Padres. <laughs> like it is beautiful. You would want to live there. Yeah. But they're not going to pay you anything, and you're probably going to be miserable during the season. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, which is strange. Great place to go in the off season. No, no, a, a number of players return. I, it, no, I, I could be wrong, but it seems. I mean, obviously, a disproportionate number of American-born players are born in California. Correct. Right. What is it? It's California, Texas, Florida, Georgia, something like the that. The South. Yeah. Yeah. Just cr- cut, cut across the Mason-Dixon line, and they're all from south of that. Okay. So, and I, I feel like I've heard of situations where players have returned. To California, um, to what? Well, maybe later in their career, or maybe not later in their career. Is that true? Uh, yes, but I think that's true everywhere. I mean, they 
I think players generally, as they get older, if especially if they've already won a championship and they're not chasing a World Series, uh, as their kids grow up and they want to be closer to the family, they generally will kind of move, migrate back towards their origins. Right. Now, we, we've heard before, I've certainly heard it in other sports, right, the appeal that a team might have um, – and in the in how like I think when the when the Royals signed maybe it was uh Irvin Santana or or maybe it was yeah, it might have been that when um Well they traded for Irvin Santana, so probably not. Oh right, they traded for Irvin Santana because it, in one of the arguments might have been that it's harder for the Royals to attract free agent talent than it is for other teams. Correct, yes. And is that is that borne out? Uh so I think it is. I I think what we see is that uh, winning teams get a discount in free agency that losing teams do not. Um, and I think we'll, we'll see, like, there's kind of a pool of players from a 34 to 40 that are still quality players who are not looking to break the bank. Uh, obviously aren't going to be looking for a long-term deal. They'll sign one or two or sometimes three-year contracts. And they generally prefer to play on a winner if they're not trying to go close to home. So the, those are kind of the two areas that they'll give some kind of um, below market discount too is their hometown team, uh, or the team they played with for their entire career, or a team that is perennially good, whether the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers or whoever, some team that is almost always in contention. If you're a team in, you know, the middle of the country where few players are actually from there, uh, you're from a northern town where it's cold. A lot of these players don't like to be where it's cold. It makes training hard. And um, you're uh, a long way, like fr- kind of from a, a central hub, if you're in one of the corners of the country that's not the northeast. Um, or if you're uh, on a team that just hasn't won in a long time, you don't get access to the, kind of this pool of players. They just aren't going to consider signing with you. And so you have to go kind of uh, bid against the, the younger guys who – uh, are looking for kind of the long-term mega contract. And if you're a team like the Royals or the Padres or one of these teams that isn't going to spend $150 million on their payroll, trying to outbid the big spenders on the younger free agents is difficult, and you can't get the older guys to come there because you're not going to win. <laughs> so it does hurt you. It, it's not the easiest thing in the world to compete in free agency if you're a mid-market team. The good news is competing in free agency, generally not a great idea anyway. Uh, and teams who try to you know build their rosters through free agency – generally fail. I think, you know, if you look at the teams who uh, were the most aggressive in the offseason last year in terms of spending money, the Yankees and Rangers. And neither one having a very good year, both probably regret almost all of their signings. No, right. And the the Rangers, the Rangers are amazing right now. In terms they have, of they're they're the, the worst team in baseball to this point. They're probably not the worst team in baseball overall, but to the All-Star break, they've played worse than every other team. Which is, which, which is astounding. Yeah. Wait, can you just say, can you just, in 30 seconds, can you recap why the Rangers are, are, have only won 38 games? Well, I think the number one reason is injuries to pitching staff. So they didn't have it, they didn't have the pitching depth necessary to fill in when half of their starters got hurt. Uh, and so they've been starting Joe Saunders and, uh, you know, Scott Baker and these guys who don't belong in the major leagues, uh, which has been, been bad. They spent a lot of money to acquire Prince Fielder, who was terrible and then is injured. Uh, and they spent a lot of money to acquire Shin Su Chu, who has not been very good. So they tied up a large percentage of their payroll in two almost useless players, and then all their pitchers got hurt. Wow, yeah. And then, um, and so what? Are, so we're talking about some of the geographical distinctions here. You mentioned the the uh, relationship between the Salento region of Italy and uh, San Diego. 
um, and maybe the, the difficulties that uh, losing or, or middle America teams might have. What are the what is what is the sort of range? Like, say you have a, a, a league average free agent, right? Mm-hmm. What would say, let's see, a coastal team that wins often? So that's that's the Giants, maybe, right? Or the Oakland A's? Well, probably not the A's because a lot of people don't want to live in Oakland. Right, right. Uh, but you know, yeah, the Giants would be a decent, uh, or the, you know, the Dodgers. I think you know. Oh yeah, sure, of course, the, the, the on, Dodgers on the coast. Right, Lots and of money. Uh, and also you probably you probably would find a number of players who are from the LA area or at least Southern California. Right. Yep. So and then you take like another like a team that hasn't won a lot, Northern. Uh, um, so say the Twins, sure, or the, or, or the Royals. Maybe they're in similar yeah. boats. Uh, what, so take an average player, um, who say is from, from the Southern California area. What would the Twins have to pay him for a two or three year contract, do you think, as opposed to the Dodgers? Well, I think it depends on what kind of player they are and how long a contract they're looking for. My guess is the premium would be something along the range of 10 to 20%. Like yeah. you have to make it large enough in order to, where they're just not saying, oh, okay, well, I can get eight million here or nine million there. I'm going to take the extra million. That's generally not going to do it. On a, you know, seven year contract or something, you add an extra year to the end and you very well might get them. I think when a player's looking kind of like, this is my big score, they almost always just try to max out years. And the bidding almost always comes down to four or five teams all interested in the player offering something close to the same salary. And then it just comes down to who's going to offer the longest deal. And the person is, the agent basically says, okay, I've got four or five year offers on the table. Who's going to go six? You'll get the player. Um, so if you're a team like the Twins or Royals or something, it's not even that you have to offer so much more money. It's that you have to offer an extra year or sometimes two at the end of the contract and just accept that those years are going to be unproductive. Right. Well, I want to tell you about the, probably the nicest places I visited. Okay. Uh, it was Croatia. Absolutely. Uh, we were in uh, Zadar, Zadar, Croatia, um, and okay. then Split, which is maybe a couple hours south by, like by car, and uh, those were beautiful. Uh, Split um, is the, uh, the let's see, uh, Diocletian was a Roman emperor, uh, sort of in I don't know third to fifth century somewhere in there. I didn't uh, read about it extensively. However, he essentially built a retirement home, but if you can imagine the Roman emperor's retirement home. It was a giant castle on the sea. Yeah. And uh, in the, in, since then, it's become uh, less of a castle, and now one half of the entire old town of Split, Croatia, is built into the castle or the wow. palace. Yeah. So it's stunningly beautiful, and you go down things which were essentially like the halls of his uh, of his palace, and now there are roads and there's restaurants. It's, it's not a huge area in terms of overall – uh, in terms of overall, like square feet or whatever, uh, but it is there's so many like little tiny roads and um, and walkways through it, very narrow that uh, this sort of that it creates a, the impression of a larger space. Do they like keep the original? Like, does the restaurant that takes up the space like own the name of what it used to be? So like, uh, <laughs> come eat at the guest bathroom. Yeah, I don't I don't know how well it's been preserved, but uh, yeah, but it's. You know, you're you're constantly within uh, an edifice that is 1,500 years old at the very at the very youngest. Yeah, uh, it's okay. very it's very sounds, impressive. Sounds neat. Yes, and the other thing that's nice about Croatia is that uh, well, they they have not adopted the euro yet, um, which uh, keeps prices a little bit deflated, and generally speaking, things are not that bad. So, 
uh, in terms of price. So you can walk out to the just uh, on the it's called the Riva. It's just the area by the by the sea, and you can get the uh, you know uh, you know you can get a, a, a coffee for let's see about ten kuna, which is like uh, one eighty essentially. Not a, I mean it's not a bad price if you're drinking it on the sea. Is right. The point. Yeah. Um, and you know there's some there's some nicer upscale restaurants, but even not so bad ones. You're on the sea, is my point. Right. And it's and it's, uh, it's beautiful and, and ancient. How would one get to split Croatia? Well, okay, so you can actually, like, if you, I, I don't know if there's like a, I mean, I'm sure you could, you know, there's something, you could go to New York to Zagreb somehow, Croatia. Uh, but if you get to Europe, you can just take EasyJet. You're probably familiar, they have. Oh, these. yeah. Yeah, they have sort of like a bunch of uh, discount airlines there. Right, they're the Oakland days of airplanes. Yes, right. Well, yeah, right. and there are a couple or of Or at them. least Oakland Coliseum. Like the sewage might flood out onto the plane <laughs> while you're flying there, but it's only 20 bucks. It is. It's Yeah, it's, so. yeah it's, they're rather affordable, and, uh, and uh, yeah, they go a bunch of places, and, and uh, yeah, that's how we'll, – and, and we were actually in Italy already, so we took a, we took a ferry from Ancona – over to Zadar, which was the, the first place we went to, which is actually might have uh, in some ways is, may, is maybe preferable to split because it's a smaller town and it's, it has a – It's smaller than being inside a castle? <laughs> yeah. Overall, it has, it has a lower population. It's only like 70,000, I think, actual residents. Uh, but that's also on the sea and it's a little bit cheaper even than split, and uh, it has a, f- a couple fewer tourists even on a sort of per capita basis. So uh, you don't necessarily feel that, but uh, you feel like you're in a different place. Most people in Croatia, certainly in the, the cities, uh, speak English as well. Um, so that's uh, that's also nice. Although you do always have the sense, again, like you might in Salento, of being in an economy that is based off of your dollars. Right. So, or your, your currency, whatever. So you feel simultaneously, you're like, oh, this is great. But at the same time, you're like, you, I did occasionally feel a little bit like a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is more so than you normally do. Yeah, right. Well, I was like, oh, like clearly I'm just taking, like, I was born in one country to a certain kind of family that allotted me a certain education and job. And these people who are totally virtuous in their way, they were just born to different families. And a different country, different economy, and so now they're serving me and hoping for my money. So what is the national dish of Croatia? Like, is there something where, like, every restaurant you went to, they were like, we have fried rabbit? Or- yeah, well, they do. I mean, like, on in Croatia, they have uh, the the coast, at least, uh, the Dalmatian coast, which is where all this stuff is. They have a lot of uh, a lot of seafood type stuff. Um, and they have, like, some, some squid ink dishes where you get, like, like squid ink with risotto. Right. Um, and then maybe, you know, like a, a melange, if you will, of uh, seafood. We actually, when we went, so we did Airbnb. Um, I, I, I don't know if, uh, no, a call to actions aren't illegal. This is not a, this is not public radio. Um, <laughs> we did Airbnb <clears throat> with a woman in, in Split, and it was absolutely the best Airbnb experience I've had. We paid less than $50 a night, which is, I think, pretty reasonable. And she had, before we got there, she had bought, all of the food. Oh, wow. Um, so we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so it was more like A-R-B-L-B-N-B. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Not only had she bought food, she had bought an assortment of beer and wine. Wow. And she also supplied like um, a drink um, called Orahovats, which is a sort of walnut liqueur that she, I guess she makes herself. 
Wow. Um, in, in, in Croatia, they have a drink called rakia, which is just like a grappa type thing. Um, but they add a lot of flavors to it. So you can have a honey one called Medica. Uh, there's like a, like an herb, uh, herb infused one that's called Traveritza. Um, and this one was called Orohovats. It's a walnut liqueur. It's very tasty. And then twice in two nights, she went to, she, she only ate with us for one of these. One of them, she just made this meal for us. She went to the fish market in the morning and bought fish from fishermen and then came home and made us fish stew and then, uh, one day she made us shrimp and prawns, and the next day she made us like a, just like uh, I don't know, but however you prepare fish, like a fish, like broiled or something. Uh, yeah, but I mean, yes, you cook a fish. You cook. She cooked a fish. Anyway, my point is that this was amazing. Yeah, I, th- I think you should uh, you should give this woman some airtime for the two listeners that have not turned off this yeah, podcast kind of, and said this is ridiculous. You should say this is the woman. Go stay here and make her some money. Yeah, uh, forgetting her name. She was so awesome, you don't know who she was. Yeah, anyway, if someone wants to contact, if someone wants to leave a message in the comments, you're really interested, I will, I will find the listing, uh, and, and supply it for you. Um, again, so she was just like the sweet, she was also great. Like she would walk around like half the time, just like in her like bathrobe, but she was like this funny mm-hmm. 60 to 65 year old woman. I said, That's, uh, that seems like a negative to me. I, it was, the point is that you are sort of enchanted by her, by her, uh, her, uh, joie de vivre, uh, joie de vivre. I should probably know how to pronounce that. Is, uh, there, is there a possibility that she was trying to seduce you and you just missed it? No, well, two, two she, things. She, she was, uh, walking around in her bathrobe, cooking you meals, buying you alcohol. Well, with, with my wife, but she loved Kelly's. The point is that, uh, no, uh, so I said, uh, we said, oh, were, you know, have you ever been married? She said, I am happily divorced twice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing was, I said, I said it straight up. I said, listen, uh, not if, but when my wife divorces me. I will propose to you. And she was like, ha, ha, ha. But she didn't say anything after that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would marry her. I would, would. Even though I don't remember her name entirely. Right. Uh, I would, I would totally marry her. So I would say, in terms of trade value, to, to, if we're going to, to strangle this and headlock it into, a, a, uh, something that's relevant to your post, it's pretty high. I would say Split and Zadar are pretty high. So this unnamed Croatian woman is the Mike Trout of your travels. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, she's not the same age as Mike Trout, but she prov- she really facilitated a great experience to the point where I said, "How?" The only problem is, and I don't know if this is a problem, the willingness to work when you're there is very low uh, because everything's just great, and it's also quite warm by 1 p.m. Say, so you're you don't really want to go outdoors. You kind of want to take a nap. Um, right? How is this different than your normal life? <laughs> somehow, somehow it is different, Dave Cameron. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you stayed with me for a few days. Yeah, in which time you basically did the same thing. You just napped the entire time you were here, and then occasionally had a beer. I was a sleepy little guy when you, I visited. You, you, you were I? pretty tired. I don't know what was going on with that. Yeah, well, I had spent so much time with my grandfather, and he just that was a, that was a lot of energy. Uh, yeah, and that's where I'd just been. I don't know. Do you think that, is this a podcast yet? Uh, it is a podcast. I don't think it's going to be a very popular one. What did you? Uh, so who's number one? <laughs> well, I, I can't give that away. All right. uh, but I bet you you can make a wild guess and probably be right. Okay. I think I'm I'm making one in my head. Is it is it a player? Is it a young player about whom a single Fangraphs writer, oh, I was like three years ago now, had the foresight to rank it an irrationally high spot uh, in his uh, what was it the uh, the franchise player draft series? 
Uh, I don't know. Did you take Andrew McCutcheon that high? No. <laughs> uh-huh. I will say, so, you know, obviously Mike Trout is uh, going to be very near the top of the list. Yeah. Uh, I will say this year, uh, without spoiling Huna's number one, this was not an easy pick because Andrew McCutcheon, uh, and, you know, maybe this is a discussion for next Monday after the list comes out, but Andrew mm-hmm. McCutcheon is signed for the next three or four years or something like that. For like a total of like $45 million. Yeah. Mike Trout is now signed for the next six years at $145 million. Wow. So, yeah. Andrew McCutcheon is worse than Mike Trout, but he's not that much worse than Mike Trout. Right. Andrew McCutcheon is fantastic. He might win his second straight MVP year, uh, this year. Uh, clearly one of the, you know, three or four or five best players in baseball. Maybe the second best player in baseball, depending on how you think about Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, he's right there as an elite player. And he's making a hundred million dollars less, yeah. uh, over the, their years of team control. This is not a no-brainer Mike Trout number one, you know, let's just move on like it used to be with Evan Longoria or that it was with Trout the last couple of years. And I think, you know, realistically, Yasiel Puig is in the conversation as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Bryce Harper doesn't suck. There's some really, really good young outfielders in Major League Baseball. The infield is not so great, but the outfield is amazing. Hey, so here's a question. Uh, now Michael Brantley appeared in your, among your first ten. He did. And, uh. Last ten, maybe. Eli, sorry, yeah, la- right. The first ten you introduced, the last right. ten of the fifty. He's, uh, he's having a fantastic season. He is. And, I, I suppose the thing that's different about him than it has been in past seasons is, uh, he's hitting for more power. Yeah. I mean, he's a better across the board. He's striking out less, but he's significantly right. hitting for power. Right. I, mean, I think his career high coming to this year was like eight home runs, he already has fifteen. Right. And, and, and the season, in like, in terms of his walks and strikeouts, like, He's kind of done similar things before. A, c- a couple of years ago, when he struck out nine percent of his at bats, he had, he did it in the minor leagues a bunch. But it, w- I'm curious, like with a, with a power spike like that, what how did that inform your decision about Mike Mike Brantley? It made it difficult, and he was one of the hardest guys to rank on the list, honestly, because Brantley is a little bit of an unusual guy in that his plate discipline, kind of like the high contact, some walks, but not like a super high walk guy is kind of prototypical of a leadoff hitter. And he, you know, he's a very good base runner, uh, has been a, a well above average base runner for almost his entire career. So when you start off with like, you know, draws some walks, hardly ever strikes out, steals bases at a, at a high efficiency clip, you kind of get an idea in your mind of like, this is a shortstop, uh, or a center fielder, or maybe a second baseman, uh, you know, probably five, ten and under, uh, good speed, good bat control, not a big guy. But then you look at Michael Brantley, he's a corner outfielder and not a great defensive one based on the defensive ratings that we have. Could play center, but the Indians don't really want to use him there. Uh, so he's, you know, you're looking at basically kind of the, the prototypical underpowered corner outfield guy. Uh, and this skill set has always been a little bit of a, a controversial one where you look at guys like Brett Gardner who kind of fits this mold a little bit. Uh, they're never guys who you see teams going bananas for of like, oh yeah, I want to, I want a corner outfielder who's going to hit 20 home runs a year or in, in Brantley's case, maybe 10 or 15. Uh, and is going to get his value through walks and doubles and stolen bases and kind of defense. But in Brantley's case, he's not a Brett Gardner level defender either. So he's a tricky guy in that there's not, he doesn't fit a mold, but at the same time, he's been amazing this year, and the Indians just signed him to a contract extension that pays him basically no money for the next three years. And if the breakout's real, they get a team option for a fourth year that you know will be well below market value. If the breakout's not real, they don't have to pick it up, and they'll only pay him $19 million for the next three seasons. So I think Brantley has played well enough to play onto the list. At the same time, I realize that in a couple months, if the power goes away, 
it's going to look like a bad ranking. Right. And I assume that uh, the omission of Brian Dozier from the 41 through 50 ranking is I I, I guess Brian Dozier to me is maybe maybe a slightly similar story, Uh, has more probably in the way of defensive value because he plays up the middle. But uh, but we we might be seeing a player like Dozier, which would suggest that um, his power spike is something that you regard as, as something that's not entirely a fluke either. Uh, so I will say Dozier's actually not on the list. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, surprisingly so. He was kind of in that mix of guys, I didn't mention him in the post, but guys who kind of profile as like three-ish win players. Uh, and I think Dozier could certainly be on the list. Like you could say, oh, I'd rather have Brian Dozier than Kyle Seeger or, um, you know, even Jan Gomes or, you know, maybe you'd rather have him than Michael Brantley. And I think, you know, there's a large swath of guys in this range who are pretty similar. You could swap out the guys who made it versus the guys who didn't. I think with Dozier, uh, it's kind of similar to Brantley, and the defensive metrics don't love his defense. I know Glenn Perkins tweeted at me, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago, and they think his defense is fantastic, and he's underrated by defensive metrics. Uh, they think he's a fantastic defensive second baseman. But this is a little bit of a, a similar case where it's you know kind of a, a longer track record of not being a big power guy, and now recently he's hit for power. And I do think, uh, you know, in both Brantley and Dozier's case, uh, there is probably, I think this is legitimate improvement for both of them, probably not to the level they're playing at, uh, but there's probably some regression coming. And I think when you look at Dozier as kind of a low batting average guy who's a lot of his value is from drawing walks uh, and, you know, playing decent defense at second base, which isn't as highly valued as shortstop or center field, necessarily. I think this is a guy who, you know, might be more valued by the sabermetric community uh, than he will be by major league teams. Okay. All right. Hey, Dave, uh, you more than fulfilled. We have a meeting to get to. We do. Yeah. And you should uh, be, you should be allowed to have a couple minutes before that. Thanks. Uh, yes. But uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Dave Cameron, for your introduction. You actually, uh, you fed, uh, you, you sort of fueled this a little bit with your opening, your opening question. Well, you know, I think it's important, whatever we can discuss, uh, your travels around the world with Croatian women trying to seduce you, it is an important topic. Yeah, let's get that on, let's yeah. get that out there, let's get that out there for the people. Yeah. Uh, alright, well, uh, stick around for one second, but in the meantime, Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs, thank you very much. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, the Managing Editor of Fangraphs, I'm Carson Stooley, this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.